Welcome to Meaning It, where I'll be asking guest speakers whether well, cops are really just a lot of blah, blah, blah. We're awash with political rhetoric. But what do governments really mean? Will their decisions be just or unjust in this already unjust and unequal world? In today's show, I'll be talking to a controversial figure among environmentalists, Mark Linus. Mark has been a climate advisor to President Mohammed Nasheed of the Maldives, who warned us back in 2008-9 at the Copenhagen COP about how his island nation was under existential threat from rising tides because of climate change. Mark is now at this COP working not only with former President Nasheed, but also with other heads of state from the Climate Vulnerable Forum now a group of over 40 countries as disparate as Bangladesh and Afghanistan, all battling with the different consequences of climate change. Mark is also an, an award-winning science writer, popularizing knowledge about climate change now for over 20 years. His books include High Tide, Six Degrees, which won a Royal Society Award, the God Species, How Humans Can Really Save the Planet. And his latest book is an update on Six Degrees with the ominous title of The Final Warning, which sounds like he really means it. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. So one of the things that you've done, Mark, apart from writing your books, is to be a climate advisor to President Nasheed of the Maldives, or former President Nasheed. Has anything improved for the Maldives since 2009 when he spoke to us at the Copenhagen COP? If this conference doesn't achieve its goals and sea levels rise, what, what are the plans for the Maldives? None. We will simply die. We will become climate refugees. Maybe a few of us might be on a boat. Yeah, well, we were all pretty despondent back in Copenhagen in 2009, um, not least because that meeting sort of was seen pretty much as being having been a, a something of a failure. Um, and I remember how I remember how that felt. And yeah, I was with President Nasheed um, for, for a lot of it. And in fact, you could see us in that film, The Island President, um, and, and just see how much kind of the, the burden was on him. And he, he did actually play quite a important role in keeping you know, keep, keeping hope alive on the 1.5 and in fact 350 ppm, which was sort of the target that was mooted then. And we've sort of given up on that because we're now at what 415. So that ain't going to happen. But in terms of the survival of the Maldives, um, if we do get to the 1.5 degree target, then the Maldives probably does have a long term future. Um, two degrees less so, not least because all of the world's coral reefs will be dead, including those around the Maldives itself. And the Maldives is a coral atoll nation where all of the sediment and the islands are built out of coral and all of the, the fisheries and you know the protection from the waves all of that depends on, on on the Maldives being a living ecosystem based on coral so um it's yeah I mean it sort of is the last chance for the Maldives and other small island states to to get um more out of COP26 which actually does put us on the path to you know that rapidly vanishing target of 1.5 degrees they have this concept of climate prosperity. So rather than kind of shying away from the idea of actually doing mitigation at home and, um, you know, seeing that as a, as a sacrifice and a potential break on economic growth, they actually see the 
clean energy future and you know potentially achieving net zero as a way to achieve uh, you know the prosperity which obviously people demand in in poorer countries i mean ba bangladesh has only just graduated from being an ldc at least developed country so you, you can't go to bangladeshis and say right that's it you know your development is, is stopped and you're going to stay poor forever um, that's politically inconceivable so the question then is how to deliver the the, the increased um, you know increase in livelihoods um and an energy that that then demands in a way which doesn't then fry the climate. So that's that's the climate prosperity agenda, and they're very progressive about that. Whereas in the old days, and you know, I've been in this business long enough um, to remember when it was just off the table to even talk about whether developing countries should take on mitigation targets. That was something like in the Kyoto regime that was only for the the, the global north to talk about. And now I think we've passed this point really where everyone accepts actually. You don't need to build huge amounts of coal in India for India to achieve prosperity. That should be done with, with clean energy, renewables, and so on. Um, and it's just a question of how we get to that, how we deliver the technology, how it's financed, and all of those kinds of things. And is, is um, clean energy, renewable energy, key to that? Uh, uh, I think clean energy and renewable energy is central to it. I mean, I would include nuclear and clean energy. It's not, it's not renewable in that classic sense, but I think the vast majority, certainly in the tropics, is probably going to be solar power. Um, certainly the Maldives would like to be pretty much 100% solar powered. The thing is, it's a bit complicated because you have to then think, how do you deliver liquid fuels for transportation? I mean, if you look at the Maldives, they have a target to be carbon zero or carbon neutral by 2030. But, you know, there's planes, there's boats, um, you know, air conditioning. Uh, I mean, we can switch over electricity for, to, so, to kind of a combination of solar and batteries for, for all of the different islands, potentially. Um, but there's no there's no carbon zero carbon liquid fuels that you can power the, the you know all of the different boats that go between the islands or let alone the you know the aircraft and the seaplanes which also also do all of that so there's quite a lot of technological progress which will be needed in fairly short order to enable well not just Maldives but all of us actually to to still be able to travel without needing to burn oil in the process. What do climate vulnerable countries need from the rest of the world? Um, well, so the CVF has got a whole manifesto going up into the COP. Um, central to that is the idea of a climate emergency pact. So, I mean, there's different components to that, but basically it's an end to business as usual. This isn't like, we can't just keep coming back year after year, COP after COP, like COP, was it going to be COP 56 or something? And, you know, we're still still talking about carbon markets and all of the modalities of, of Article 6 and all this all this sort of stuff. So yeah, we, we need a we need a step change where it's recognised as being a, a, an emergency and a crisis, which needs to be addressed in that kind of fashion. So not just once a year, but in an ongoing sense. And part of what you know, like so, out of Paris, the NDCs only have to be updated every five years. And if you're trying to meet 1.5, and you know, it's the 2030 emissions goal which makes the difference to that. There's no point in just doing that every five years because it's you know some of somebody won't be reporting until 2028, and you know it's way too late. So the one of the central asks for the CVF is to have annual uh, pledges so that you can up the ambition and kind of, you know, have a kind of ratcheting effect of increasing ambition every single year rather than every, every five years, which is just, just, too, just too slow. Um, also, financing is really key. I mean, you've, everyone's heard a lot about the 100 billion goal, and there's been some announcements from the UK presidency about that in the last couple of days. Um, and, you know, there's definitely progress being made towards delivering on what was quite an old promise. I mean, this was first floated in, in Copenhagen back in 2009, and I think was sort of properly concretized in Paris, but it was supposed to have been delivering 100 billion since 2020. And that's, that's definitely not happened. There's still a gap there. And also the issue of debt. Um, 
President Nasheed's talked a lot about this. Um, the CVF actually was launching a debt manifesto. The problem is that a lot of the, the climate vulnerable countries are paying out, I don't know, four or five times more in debt than they're spending on climate adaptation mitigation just because we, they're, they're, they're in a really debt distressed situation at the moment. They're facing climate impacts. And the IPCC has made very clear now that we are in a situation where the extreme weather events are directly attributable to climate warming. And so those those damages, the kind of loss and damage, as it's termed in COP parlance, um, are, are quantifiable, and that's costing huge amounts of money to to, to vulnerable developing countries um, who who can't afford to pay it. So, if they're spending more in debt servicing, um, most of this going towards the rich countries who've caused the problem by emitting so much in the past, um, that's manifestly unfair. And so. The Climate Vulnerable Forum is going in there asking for uh, debt restructuring in, in order to, as a sort of basis for their climate prosperity plans and, and the investment they want to make. Mark, do you think that there are plausible ways to draw down carbon? People talk, keep talking about net zero because that means that you can emit carbon while still drawing it down as well to balance. So is it really plausible now that we can draw down more carbon? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I actually think the only the issue here is scalability, right? You can you can you can if you get the chemistry right, you can scrub carbon out of the ambient air and, you know, end up with a liquid CO2 stream of, you know, 100 percent quality. But, you know, it, it, it's all very, very small. Um, and even if you scale up these big scrubbing machines, then you'd be removing, I don't know, a couple of million tons. But that's still orders of magnitude lower than what we need to do. And if you think about the physics of what this would involve, you're basically, you'd basically be reversing the oil and gas industry for decades and taking all that carbon supposedly out of the atmosphere and pumping it back underground from whence it came. And it's uh, using energy from somewhere. I mean, it's, it's actually, I find that implausible, really, in terms of the, the physics and the dynamics of, of what that kind of effort would, would suggest. Um, so it's it's probably fine for small scale offsetting, and it's nice for people to be able to say, I've definitely removed a thousand tons of carbon from the atmosphere to make up for the thousand tons of carbon I've just emitted. Um, but it's not it's not scalable, and I don't think it's going to it's going to we should allow an overshoot pathway for 1.5 on the basis that we're somehow miraculously going to remove all this carbon. The only exception I'd make, I think, is is, is large scale reforestation and re restoration of ecosystems. So the best way to remove carbon probably is through solar-powered photosynthesis, which plants invented a long time ago, um, you know, a couple of billion years or so. And um, that then can be sequestered in, you know, in, in soils, peat bogs, biomass and all that kind of stuff, so long as they're protected and we protect enough of the land and the oceans to enable that to happen. So that's kind of <clears throat> puts together the conservation, you know, rewilding ecological restoration challenge and puts that as a kind of climate solution which I think is, is, is really, you know, that, that's something that could potentially address um, billions of tonnes um, of, uh, you know, of, of carbon removal. But I don't, I don't think there's any other plausible way to do it. When people talk a lot about trees <coughs> and, and insects dying and bees, and, uh, the focus very often seems to be on the consequences. It's almost like we've attached the crisis to the consequences rather than attaching the crisis to the people who caused it. So we kind of keep looking at, you know, with grief and sadness and, you know, understandable horror at, you know, people drowning, people, crops failing and so on. But don't we need to switch our gaze from the terrible consequences sometimes and look back at who is really causing these consequences 
it's almost like, <clears throat> apart from some activists, those, the, 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 the people causing it get away. Well, they do. And, and I mean, they get away because of power disparities globally, of course. Um, and there's nothing really that we can, any, anyone can do to, <laughs> to change that. And certainly not just for the climate, but that happens in, in, in every area, whether it's military or economic or financial or, or whatever. But ac actually, that issue of differing responsibilities is central to the to the whole UNFCCC process and has been since the beginning. I mean, that was why initially that the global north and, the, you know, Annex one or whatever they were called countries were supposed to take the first cuts under the Kyoto Protocol was because they had the highest um, historical responsibility for emissions. I mean, much as I would love to see global inequalities um, addressed, I don't think we can hang the climate change problem on on that and insist that we have to have some kind of, you know, global uh, equity revolution in order to address climate change. We can do it largely technologically, and that's how it will be done. Um, but what we shouldn't do is, uh, is, is extenuate or make worse the inequalities that currently exist. And that's why I think putting things like debt is, you know, is, is important as part of the COP process, because you've got to, even if you don't quantify it, you've got to recognize that the you know, the, the, the carbon budget has largely been burnt by the global north. And then asking developing vulnerable developing countries to pay debt servicing at the same time to pay for the climate impacts caused by the global north, who've lent them the money and are now demanding debt repayments. I mean, there's different, there's so many different levels of, of, of kind of objectionable morality on that. that can, you, it, can you spell those out, Mark? Well, so there's historical responsibility for carbon emissions, right? Um, and the industrialized countries, because they had their industrial revolutions earliest, are, are, are the most responsible. Um, so that's countries in, in Europe uh, and the United States primarily. Um, increasingly, though, China, because China's emitted a lot in the last you know, couple of decades, if not, you know, not, not in the early part of the 20th century. But anyway, so it, the, the, that's the historical responsibility. The problem is with carbon budgets, we now know that the global temperature outcome is a function of cumulative emissions. So we now know that there's a finite carbon budget that the atmosphere can absorb if we're going to keep to the Paris goal of 1.5 degrees. And there isn't very much carbon budget left. Mostly it's already been eaten up and emitted by the countries with the highest historical responsibilities. And so the conundrum you've got is you can't allow um, carbon-based development anywhere, even in the global south, for their, you know, for, for poverty eradication, because the carbon budget's gone. If you do that, you'll blow past the Paris targets. So how, the only way to address that really is financially, and to say, right, the global north has the obligation to pay for clean energy development in the global south, so that they can get the energy they need and the development, but without having to fry the climate, which is why really finance is at the centre of, of, of the COP, not just the 100 billion thing, but also debt restructuring because the vulnerable developing countries are paying out far more in debt than they almost almost any other aspect of their budgets. So it is, you know, like everything, it ultimately comes down to money and recognizing the like the different moral responsibilities for climate change, I think, does change the game in terms of who has to pay for pay for the clean energy transition. So in recent days, uh, the UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has been talking down the probable success of the COP. What do you think that really means? What's that really about, in your view? Well, success means different things to different people. Um, I mean, success for the Maldives is probably going to look a bit different to success to the UK or, or even the United States. I mean, there's parties, of course, who don't particularly want a successful outcome at all. 
when you might think of, I don't know, the Saudis or perhaps the Russians or any fossil, ex, fossil fuel exporting economy, um, particularly the autocratic ones. I mean, they, they, they don't want serious cuts in, in, in fossil fuel consumption, which we obviously have to have. So, um, yeah, so, so success, I think, in, in, you've got to say, well, in whose terms is it going to be, whose terms? I mean, the UK doesn't want the embarrassment of what happened to the Danes in Copenhagen, where the whole thing is seen as a failure and the prime minister kind of goes, goes home with his tail between his legs. Um, so expectations management in advance of the COP is kind of a central part of the, the kind of the psychology of the whole thing. But I guess success will be um, a kind of outcome decision document, which is adopted with great applause and which actually addresses some of the central challenges of financing and the NDCs and, and, and stuff like that, um, you know, on the final weekend. So that's, I mean, that's all that can be done at COPS. We can't expect them to change the world. They're, they go through the items on the agenda and they try and come to decisions on them. And a lot of it's quite, you know, quite anodyne. You know, it's the modalities of the carbon market in Article 6 and, you know, operationalizing the loss and damage mechanism agreed in Santiago and, and things like that. I mean, you, you have to be kind of a, it's lawyers only when you actually get to the text level of, of what's inside the square brackets. It's way beyond, you know, my pay grade. But you know, uh, at the very least, we've already got carbon budgets agreed and there's a net zero plan. I mean, the UK, to give them credit, they are the only country with a net zero plan going into um, go, going into the COP, um, which is which is assessed by the scientists as being almost sufficient in terms of the 1.5 degree goal. So it's like, you know, it's good to give credit where, where credit's due, I think, because, you know, I've never thought I'd see such a thing from a Tory government <laughs> putting my own politics on the on the table there. But it, you know they, they've they've at least got the plan and uh, you know and and some some pathway to delivering that. So we all do have to do our bit as well, and that that affects us all as individuals. And not standing in the way and not being kind of grumpy about it. And you know there's a lot of a lot of people who are like looking at the the protesters, whether it's insulate Britain or anything like that, and saying, well, why you know I can't drive my car and you know I want to get my kids to school and. We have to accept that the climate emergency is what it means, that we are going to have to change. And it's not business as usual. It doesn't mean we can carry on living our lives in the way we've always been used to. And people, I think, need to need to wake up to that just as we did in the pandemic. We keep hearing that this is the last chance at this COP, that this is it. And yet when when the world leaders meet, do you think the real intention is to do as much as possible or to do as little as possible? Do you think they really mean it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you, you hear the last chance thing so often that it's become a bit of a cliche in the climate discourse, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone. But it probably applies more to Glasgow than any previous meeting, of course, because we've got, you know, it's now so late in the day um, to meet any goals. And, you know, uh, there's no sign of emissions globally beginning to trend downwards. If anything, it's going in the opposite direction. And we're likely to still see increases, at least for the next decade. Whereas if we're going to meet the 20, well, if we're going to meet the, the budget for 1.5, we have to basically see emissions cut by half by 2030, and then way well, you know, at zero pretty much for 2050. Um, that's clearly, that's clearly not what this meeting is about. I mean, there's the thing about cops as well as and I've been to quite a few of them. It's just, you don't read too much into it. I mean, it's there's a lot of theatrics and it's about government leaders, um, uh, you know, being seen to be doing something. Um, but you have to hope that those those optics and all of that 
feeds into a, a, at the very least a sort of a, a kind of momentum. And it's been a bit of a deadline. I mean, you can see Joe Biden's desperately trying to get the climate legislation through a Congress or at least started so that he's got something to bring to the COP. And, you know, there's the pressure on, on, on the Indians to decide on whether they're doing their net zero goal or not. There's pressure on the Chinese, even though Xi Jinping isn't going to come himself. Like, what are they going to put on the table, which is additional? So I think it's it's helpful in the sense that it does provide kind of a deadline and a choke point where stuff has to happen, which could otherwise sort of quite rapidly fizzle out. So um, I don't think it's completely pointless by any stretch. But at the same time, we've had 26 cops now. And, um, you know, the global concentrations of CO2 keep going up by keep going up by two parts per million, regardless of how many cops we have. So one last question, Mark, and then I should let you go. If you woke up one morning and you suddenly realized that everything was okay, the climate crisis was over, how would you know? Um, I think I would have to measure it empirically. Um, the climate crisis will only be over when the concentrations of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are at a level which enables the climate to be stable. And actually, that's pretty much the language that was in the original UN Framework Convention on Climate Change agreed back in 1992. That's the objective of all of this, is to stabilise the planet's climate. Um, we know that's probably somewhere between 350 and, you know, just above 350 parts per million if you look at the Earth's geological history. So that's where we need to get to. Um, we're currently at 415, going up by two every single, two ppm every single year on average. Um, no cops have made a difference to that so far. But um, I do think, I don't know, I'm, I'm quite cautiously, I'm always optimistic, partly by dint of my sunny personality, and um, partly just looking at the trends that are going on. I mean, we've got clean energy technologies now available that weren't 10 years ago, and our price, you know, the, the price differential is like in favour of renewables now in lots of parts of the world. So that's something we should celebrate and, you know, and at least look at the look at the good things rather than being despondent and despairing, which doesn't really help anyone in the longer term. Well, thanks so much, Mark. Bye for now. Bye.